Hello and welcome back to Blazers for Goalposts. It's Joe here, alongside my trusty co-host Kaitel, as well as a special guest too. Today we welcome Ricky Hill to the podcast. Ricky is a Luton Town legend, having spent the majority of his career there, winning promotion with them and also beating Arsenal in the League Cup final. And as a Spurs fan, this is something I can very much get behind. Ricky has also managed all over the world and is a leading voice on calling for black coaches to be given more opportunities within professional football. Ricky, it's clearly been a very surreal time. How have you been getting on during the lockdown period? Hi, Joe. Kaitel, good to see you. Yeah, great. Your lockdown period has been obviously difficult for, for everyone, um, myself included. But having said that, I wasn't actually with a professional club at this moment in time. So it was kind of, I had the flexibility to do a lot of reading, do a lot of catching up around the house, spend some more quality time with the, the wife, um, which she was, was, might not be too pleased about getting her away. But outside of that, it's been, I've managed okay so far, Joe. Brilliant. Well, it's good to hear that. Hi, Ricky. It's Kai here, and it is brilliant to have you with us. I, unlike Joe, I'm an Arsenal fan, and as such, the League Cup is a bit of a sensitive subject for me. For instance, I went to Cardiff to see us lose in the final to Chelsea, and then I was at Wembley a few years later to see us lose again, this time to Birmingham City. So luckily, for me at least, I didn't have to witness this, but as Joe mentioned, Ricky, you've beaten Arsenal in a League Cup final for Luton back in '88. Was that cup win the crowning moment of your playing career? Um, I don't know about the crowning moment. Kai, obviously, it's a, it's a major moment for the club. The first uh, domestic trophy they've won in the history. And I think they've, to date, they've been going 135 years. So to be part of that was wonderful, obviously. I think, for me, the pinnacle would be being selected for England. Obviously, that's every schoolboy's dream, to play for England to play professional footballer and ultimately then if you're good enough to play for England. So that would be the pinnacle. But like you rightly say, the Arsenal game was great because for myself personally, I broke my leg at Goodison Park on Boxing Day of 1987. And the final for the Arsenal game was in April 88. And that was my first actual game back after breaking my leg. I had no reserve games. I had one behind closed doors game at Crystal Palace the Tuesday before the final on the Sunday. And I managed to come through that and I was fortunate enough there was a position available in the side because one of our players done his anterior crucia on the Wednesday and that kind of cleared a, a position whereby the manager could take the gamble on me being able to play after having no or limited match practice and for that reason that reason alone it was fantastic to be part of the winning side I obviously wasn't match fit um, 100% I couldn't do the things that I would probably have liked to have tried to have done in normal circumstances. But having said that, I was part and parcel of it. It was a wonderful occasion. We were the underdogs. We were down and out at one stage. Arsenal missed the penalty at 2-1 to Arsenal, which would have made it 3-1 and we would have been kind of buried for the game. That galvanised us and we scored two goals in the last 10 minutes. The last one coming in 91st minute, I believe. Fairy tale stuff. So... Wonderful occasion. Arsenal were always a major side back at, in those days. They were you know, it was top four sides. Chelsea wouldn't have been cast as a top four in, in that era. It would have been Arsenal, Manchester United, Liverpool for sure. And Tottenham would have been bordering that. So, yeah, great to have it. Great to achieve it. Great to have another piece of silverware from my playing career in terms of a domestic trophy. It sounded like a very dramatic turnaround, as you mentioned. So, if anything, I'm even more, yeah, I suppose, glad that from the Arsenal perspective, I didn't have to have to have my heart broken like that. But on that that same game, do you have any memories of coming up against a young David Rowcastle in the midfield? Yeah, for sure. David and I have been friends. Yeah, you know, I followed his career when he burst through at 17, 18, 19 years old. David, Mickey Thomas. Chris White was at Arsenal's at the time, Raphael Mead, Paul Davis. They were all close in terms of, you know, we'd go to London, we'd meet each other, go out to various clubs and we'd see each other. And I kind of was like a bigger brother to them at times. Um, and I followed David's career 
greatly and, and admired his rise right through the ranks and his ability. The thing with my position and David's position where we both play right side. So we very rarely came up against each other per se as opponents. My immediate opponent was Kenny Sampson, who at that time was the outstanding left back for England. And again, I played youth team football with Kenny, uh, England youth. And I'd also played against him at school level. Just ironically, he was from South London, I was from North London. And I didn't even realize at the time he was England schoolboys captain. But I remember playing against him there thinking what a good player he was. So it's kind of strange how our past followed each other and eventually ended up at Wembley for that cup final which we won. And Rocky Rocky got a penalty in that game actually given for him and it was a phantom touch. I know David's not here now, God bless him, that he can't defend himself, but the replays will show that with minimal contact, Arsenal were given a penalty and fortunately for us, Andy Dibble managed to pull off a fantastic save and kept the game 2-1 down for us. Yeah, given that you've mentioned it sounded like it might have been, yeah, a little bit of simulation. Sounds like Justice was... No VAR. Yeah. Well, you didn't need it, luckily, in the end. You guys turned it around. Picking on Luton for a moment, and as a club in recent years, they've been on the up and up for a while now after relegation to non-league football amidst some financial issues. So they're back in the EFL Championship and on the pitch, things are looking quite good. They survived from relegation. However, though, the town of Luton over time has become somewhat synonymous with the EDL. And it would appear that some of those societal issues have, as ever, spilled over into football, with fans at Kenilworth Road having been heard singing pro-Tommy Robinson chants. And there have also been several reported instances of racist abuse in recent years. What do you make of that side of Luton's reputation? And what was the fan culture like when you were a player at the club? Yeah, trying to cram in 40 years of the history that I had with the club. Obviously, I started in 75 there as a schoolboy in 74. Started on the full-time staff in 76. And when I got into the first team initially, I remember one game prior to my getting into the first team, where I was on the periphery, Laurie Conan was playing. And he was playing for Orient. And he was going up and down the right wing. And he was terrorising the Luton left back at the time. And I can remember monkey noises being chanted at that stage in the ground. And during the week, I was asked to do an interview with the local press. And I said I was disappointed in terms of hearing monkey noises from the crowd because it could be aimed at myself or Brian Steen, who was part of the side at the time at Luton. If you had those feelings, they could relate to aiming at myself or Brian as well as Laurie. So I made my, my, my opinion known. And to be honest, from that day onwards, I never really heard any sign of any monkey chants at the ground. So hats off to the club. Um, I was told at one stage there was an element of the National Front that was around handing out leaflets, but I wasn't privy to that. And I, I never witnessed that myself. Moving forward now to this day and age with the Tommy Robinson scenario and the EDL, I was led to believe the EDL I didn't think it arose specifically from the Luton supporters, although Tommy was a major part of the, uh, the organisation. I wasn't aware that Tommy was a Luton fan at all, either past or present. Perhaps he is, perhaps he isn't. It's disappointing if that is the case and there is an element there that, you know, support the Keep Britain White scenario or anti-immigrant scenario. You know, everyone has their respectfully have their right to their own opinion, but it should never really cross over to the sporting element of sides of things whereby, you know, players are being singled out or victimised for being different to, to anyone else. It's obviously not good to hear those links with Tommy Robinson, but it's perhaps more positive that you've said that most of your experiences of Luton were more positive and not really associated with that. Going beyond your time at Luton, you went on to spend a season in France with the Havre, um, a club in recent times that's been known for producing really, really brilliant talent like Paul Pogba and Riyad Mahrez, just to name a couple of examples. So how did the coaching style at the Havre compare to what you knew from your time at Luton? And do you think your experience in France might have had any influence on you kind of um, managing abroad later on in your career? No, 
Yeah, Joe, it, it was it was a fantastic opportunity for me. Um, I've always I'd always wanted to go abroad. I felt that technically my game would have been suited to the continental style, which was classed as being slightly more technical rather than physical. Unfortunately for me, the opportunity that I got was at the Havre, and they had just been relegated to the second division, which was totally different to the first division. So stylistically, it was very much like England and, and maybe the lower England league in terms of you know, the aggression and the physical output and less of the technical side of things. Having said that, what I did glean and, and learn from my association with the half, our trainer, our head coach was a, a gentleman called Pierre Mankowski, who's still now the under-20 coach for the French national scene oh, okay. team. Um, and he was amazing in respect to his, the physiology of the game and the conditioning of the players. And I went there thinking, I'm going to do a few tricks. I'm going to show them that I've got a nice left foot, right foot. I can do certain things with the ball. And the first day I got there, they, they whizzed me off straight to the, the hospital. And I thought, what's this about? And then I was put onto the, the bike and there was a, a professor standing there, a doctor standing there with a, a notepad. And there was all these different wires coming out of me. And I, I'd never been exposed to that in England in my whole career. And I'd been in England 15 years. And they'd started to say, right, now you're going to do this for this amount of minutes, do that for that amount of minutes. And they were jotting down everything, taking notes. And I was pushing, it's like your VO2 max. And I was thinking, what's all this about? So I thought, okay, got that out of the way, went to training. 20 minutes into training, the coach went, tuck. And it was like, stop. And we started to take their pulse. And they would measure their pulse 20 minutes in. I'm like, what do I do? What's this about? I was, it was totally foreign to me. So ultimately, after the first few weeks to getting used to that and drink, drinking water, religiously you know during sessions during lunch times before games water was unknown to me coming from the english culture it was drink what you want you know orange lucas say that training nice quench your thirst afterwards if you were a teetotaler you'd have blackcurrant lemonade if you wanted a pint you'd have a shandy or a pint down a snooker hall the culture was totally different i thought wow but i saw my body shape change within that time and i thought oh my touch didn't improve but I could certainly run a little bit more. And I, and I, and I had this lean kind of demeanor. I was looking drawn. I thought, wow, what's going on here? But from the conditioning perspective, wonderful, wonderful people. They had an academy, which was an advanced. So any, we had no academies at that time. Their academy took boys in from 12 years old at that time. Had them from all over the country living there on the site where we trained eating there, studying there. And we'd see the young players working with Abdul, who was the youth team coach. And they would, they'd come in the afternoon after we'd been in the morning and we'd have a double session in the afternoon. That was another thing. We had two sessions a day. We, we trained in the morning and we went home. We came back at four o'clock and trained again. We went to the forest on Tuesday religiously and ran for 45 minutes, no balls. And that was like, wow, this is something different. So I really enjoyed it. It opened my eyes to the conditioning required. Technically side of it, it didn't show me anything new. Tactically, it wasn't great because the sides were just about competing. But in terms of the actual understanding of how the physiology and stuff works, um, it was a wonderful experience. And a marvelous set of people working at the club in Alan Belsar, who had been there for, I think he's, he retired about seven years ago. He'd been there for 40 years, I believe and J.P. Huria, who was the president, and Pierre Mankowski was the manager. It sounded like an absolutely fantastic experience. It sounds like pretty knackering as well, but, you know, that forward-thinking approach in France, I'm sure. Would you, would you say it's helped you as a coach at all? Did you take on board any of their advice, or do you think now, in kind of modern football, most clubs are kind of doing what the Havre were doing back then, now anyway? No, without a doubt. Everyone has their own philosophy in terms of how they want to run their team, management style, identity of play, style of play, tactics, formation. We all have our own ideology. But at the same time, what I did learn from the French perspective was the importance of that structure, the conditioning, times when you need to rest, work, the musculation, where it's a gym, gym scenario, where they went every week, where in, at Luton you might have done it in pre-season, but you wouldn't do it during the season unless you've done it on your own. So in terms of that, yes, they were far in advance of what we were doing. 
and I picked up lots of bits from that and I've taken little elements out of everyone and everywhere that I've been, different styles that the coaches have had, tried to put it into my own, just as I did as a player. As a player, I, I, I didn't have, I had Leeds as my team. Uh, I grew up, I still support Leeds United, so we're back in the Premiership now. But, <laughs> I, but I watched all the best players and I tried to emulate the best parts of their game and put it into my game. That's how I try to develop myself as a footballer. Thankfully, the sports science has moved on from managers having to physically come around and, what is it, check either wrists or necks for players' pulses. That could take quite a while with the big squads in, in today's game. But moving on from, from your time in France and on to your England career a little bit, and as only the fourth black player to represent England at a senior level, and given that those who came before you, uh, the likes of Cyril Regis, etc., were capped not long before you made your three Lions debut, it would appear that on an international level for England, you wouldn't have really had any black footballers to look up to as a kid. And I know you mentioned earlier when we started speaking that, you know, schoolboys dream of playing for England. But like I said, that wasn't really something that you could look at as reality when you were a kid. So like you said, you dreamed of it. But did, did you really think it was going to come true? Did it seem like it was ever going to be a possibility? Yes. <laughs> I, I dreamt of it. Okay? I had the vision. And I guess in life, it's all about, for me anyway, it's been about the vision. My vision came in 1965, I'm giving my age away a little bit, but I was watching the TV and the black and white TV and Leeds United, unbeknown to me who the sides were, it was Leeds United and Liverpool playing in the FA Cup final. And there was someone in a white kit that looked like me. And I thought, oh, I put myself in, I superimposed myself into that body saying, well, I'm there, I'm playing. I was six years old. And I found out, I asked my brother, what team is that? And he was a couple of years old and he said, it's Leeds United. So, okay, that's my team. So I started supporting Leeds because of that, this person. I didn't know the person's name. It was only when I got older and I then began to take more interest in, in the game, eight, nine, that it was Albert Johannesson, the left winger, South African left winger from Leeds. He was just a black person in a white kit, standing up, waiting to shake the Queen's hand or whoever was a dignitary at the time. But that vision for me made, I want to do that. I want to be him. I want to play. I want to be that guy. And then 1966 came and Pele turned up at Goodison Park and Eusebio turned up. I thought, okay, that's me again. I can do this. I have two, two people, three people that I've seen that look like me. And maybe they, I, I want that. So when I was seven, a teacher who was at school said, what do you want to do when you get older? And I was in the playground and I said, I want to be a professional footballer. And she said, oh, no, you know, only two out of every hundred become professional footballers. And I said, well, I want to be one of those. And it's been my dream and my drive. And as you rightly say, by the time I became old enough to be connected with a football club, it wasn't going to be an easy path for me because there was no one of, of my hue that was playing regularly within the system that I could see. Clyde Best was one. And I saw... Eddie Coco play for West Ham and John Charles. There was three that played for West Ham in about 1973. And I was only 13, 14. I thought, okay, ooh, there's more coming through now. And I, and I had that dream. At the same time, one of my school teammates, Steve Gatton, who played for Arsenal and played for Brighton, and his brother Mike obviously was captain England in cricket, him and I were schoolmates. And he'd gone to the Middlesex trials and I hadn't because I had a broken wrist. And he got selected at Middlesex trials and then got signed by Arsenal at 14. So Steve was at Arsenal. I was at school. I was hoping to be a player. We were playing in the same school sides. Steve's a wonderful player. So, I, you know, I wouldn't be grudging that opportunity because he deserved it. But I was fairly useful too, but I was not even in the Middlesex side. I wasn't in the Borough side, but I captained my school. And it just by chance, I was out in Hitching playing in a tournament, a, a county tournament for my school against a team in Hitching where the Luton manager, first team coach, reserve team coach, and youth team coach were watching three of their schoolboys, and we were playing against them. And we beat them, and they invited three of our school to come for trials. And that's how I started to get in. But then for it to go to 1982, when I made my debut for England, and that came around, I'd just been promoted with Luton from the old championship to the premiership, and Bobby Robson's first squad was announced. And unbeknown to me, again, Bobby Robson was a major fan of mine. He always tried to sign me, apparently, from when I was 18 years old. And he would always, when he saw our manager, David Pleat, 
put his arm around him and say, when are you going to sell me your boy Hill? Again, unbeknown to me. Uh, I didn't have an agent. Agents weren't prevalent. And I just played. So, but Bobby Robson's first international squad, he picked me. I thought, wonderful. And there was Luther Blissett, Sue Regis, um, Mark Chamberlain, John Barnes. There was, a, there was about seven in his first squad, black players. I thought, wonderful. And then I became his first new cap when I came off the bench against Denmark in Copenhagen in the European Championships. So it was wonderful. And the ironic thing about that particular squad, Luther and Cyril and I grew up in Brent. We all come from the same place, which is the home of Wembley. Wembley is situated in Brent, the borough of Brent. And none of us were schoolboys at professional clubs until our last year. I think I signed six months ago of my last school year. Luther might have done the same at Watford there. But we all ended up being in the squad for England in 1982. It was just the transition and transformation was, was unreal, really, in terms of the time. And as you rightly say, because of the lack of a number of black players that were playing during that era. So for us to come through what we did with the racism at that time and the obstacles at that time and the perceptions at that time, and then all find ourselves to get at England together was, was really, really good. That's obviously a really inspirational story and it just shows that, you know, if you have a dream, you shouldn't give up on it. I think, yeah, what better example than that? We're now going to move on to talk about your coaching career. And we're going to start off, obviously, I think your first role was actually at Tampa Bay Rowdies in the 90s. Um, I know you'd go back there a bit later. But then um, there was an eight-year gap between Tampa Bay and then getting the Luton job. I know um, during that time you worked at Sheffield Wednesday and Spurs as well, my team, in the academy. But I was interested to find out, kind of in that eight-year gap, aside from the time when you had the academy roles. Was it quite tricky to get that first team manager role? Was it you had to apply for lots of jobs and wait for Luton? Or was it more a case in that eight-year gap you were kind of learning your trade at Sheffield Wednesday and Spurs? Basically, how tough were those early years to just get yourself on the managerial map? Well, it was funny, actually, Joe, because the Tampa scenario 92 just came out of the blue. I'd gone out there as a player and captain. And then Rodney Marsh was the general manager, CEO. And he decided after three games to get rid of the two coaches that we had in place then. And uh, he said to me, Rick, do you want to become you know, first team player coach? And I said, but we have two coaches already because well, I warned them last year. They didn't do better. They'd be out this year. We'd drawn one, lost one, and won one at the time. So I couldn't see the logic in his decision. But I said, OK, I'll have a go. And I, I love the, the thought of being able to put your own ideas across training-wise and philosophy-wise and stylistically, you know, formation. And it kind of worked out very well for me. Um, we went to two national finals. I managed to win the Coach of the Year award. But then two days after losing the second championship final, I came back to Tampa and Rodney said, well, him and I didn't have a relationship, so he wasn't going to renew my contract. I had to uproot, bring the kids back home. They'd only been out there for four months. My wife, they'd changed their schools. They had to re-register them back at the school, which wasn't easy. And we live in Edgeware. Our house was rented out to the Japanese embassy at the time. So we had to go and live with the mother-in-law. And, you know, had no work, no job. Both of us came back to start from scratch. So that period was very difficult. I set up a coaching store locally, which seemed to go okay. I then got an opportunity with your, your uncle, Joe, in Cape Canaveral. So that got me back into the actual full-time coaching perspective at uh, Coco Expo, which was a fantastic environment. I also coached the FIT, Florida Institute of Technology's men's team for Coach Rick Stocker. I also done that, as I assisted on that role. So that kept me there and, and it was going well. We had a great run. We got to the USL finals. We won our region, being unbeaten during that season, only getting beaten in two cup matches. And then the opportunity to come to Sheffield Wednesday came about and David Pete was the manager at the time. An under-19 role came up, took that, and went on to Tottenham. So I hadn't really had a lot of luck between 92 and 94 when I'd made applications for roles. 
specific roles, whatever roles they were, whether it was a first team coach somewhere or assistant manager somewhere or the head coach elsewhere. And ironically or incidentally, I'd done an interview in 1992 whilst I was at Tampa. And they asked me, why did you come to America? I said, well, the World Cup was coming up in 94. Thought there might be more opportunities going to be developing in America, whereby I'm coming to the end of my career. Coaching is something I want to try to stay within the game in managerial positions. And there might be opportunities that will arise from my stint in Tampa. I said, in England, it's been proven that you know, black people have had difficulty transitioning from players into coaches at that time or even into managers at that time. So if I could get an opportunity somewhere, then I'd, I'd take the opportunity to get that experience rather than wait at home and the opportunity may never occur. So that was done in 92, that's 28 years ago. I, I think it still resonates and it's still relevant right now in terms of the lack of opportunities that black managers seem to get. So I went to Tottenham, was at Tottenham and I got approached by Luton to come and be assistant manager originally. I declined the opportunity to go back as assistant manager because I was offered to the current manager five years prior to that and he didn't come back to me or didn't indicate that he wanted me to be assistant. So I didn't think that he would want me now. And you can sort him with taking over and I think they were forcing me onto him. So I declined. I said, I'll stay at Tottenham. But then three weeks down the road, the manager was paid up. He had a severance in his contract. He was relieved of his duties. And a new consortium approached me and said, would I like the opportunity? I grabbed it with both hands because, you know, Luton, 15 years there. It's the largest part of my adult life at one stage I'd spent at that club. So who wouldn't want to go back and try to course, yeah. elevate them as best you can? They were in the doldrums. They'd been in administration for three and a half years. The club assets had all been stripped. I think Gary... Doherty was the last one that went to Tottenham that season. During that season when I joined, um, he was loaned back and then taken back to Tottenham. I joined in that summer period when he went back to Tottenham. So he, he'd gone and Athens had left. And it was a difficult period. Um, I got four months, which was a little bit harsh in, in my estimation, because obviously you want to be judged on your own work. You want to be judged on your own philosophy. You want to be given the time to try to implement certain ideas that you have as opposed to be judged on something that was bad and had been going bad for, for quite a while. So sad when I had to leave, felt aggrieved when I had to leave because uh, it was circumstantial as far as I was concerned. Um, but that's the nature of the game. You wouldn't know it, uh, Ricky, but that's the second mention Gary Doherty's gotten in consecutive podcasts that we've done, which I definitely he's wasn't expecting. Yeah, that, that is a, project. He's, a le he's a legend. Yeah, we're flying his flag recently. Um, but a point I was going to be mentioning next, but you brought me on to, was the stint that you had at Luton in, in 2000 as the first team, the manager. And you mentioned that it sounds like it was kind of a transitional time with the consortium and administration and also coming in not quite at preseason. You were sort of taking over someone else's squad. And so it sounds like there were definitely some obstacles to overcome. But did you feel, and you mentioned as well, given your time at the club as a player, that were you expecting a bit more patience from the people above you? Um, I was expecting a bit more realism, to be honest. Um, as far as I'm concerned, and it wouldn't matter if, without being disrespectful, it was Jose Mourinho or, or Jurgen Klopp, whoever that came into the club at that time with those circumstances, it would have been a difficult period for anyone, let alone me. Yeah, the expectation is always great because I've had a 15-year history. You know, I was the first England international they had since 1955. So there's a lot of history. I've got a, a really strong relationship with the fans and always have had. But I would expect some kind of realistic expectation to be placed in any conversation. And that would mean you know, accepting my report after the first month that said, in order for the club to progress, unfortunately, 13 out of the 19 pros that are here will have to leave. I understand that they can't all go and disappear overnight, but if you allow me to have four players of a reasonable standing, I'll work with the other six that are quality, in my estimation, that still got developed. And we're, when the 13 ultimately contracts expire, 
if we haven't been able to loan them out or move them on, then we just won't renew their contracts. Unfortunately for me, that report met with derision by the former chairman who was now the director of football, somehow, uh, Cliff Bassett. He, he sold the club to the new consortium for three and a half million, but also found himself being a place as a director of football. And part of me, whether cynically or not, believed that he was trying to protect his own interests because he had sold it on the proviso that one or two of those players could be sold, like Gary Doherty had been previously, to recruit some of the investment the consortium had handed over to him. Now, my report had blown a hole in that theory. It stated only six were capable. And it's proven over time that only one of those players, the 19 that I inherited, shall we say, only one was actually sold for money. And that was Matthew Taylor to Portsmouth for 750000 Every other player, the 13 I suggested should go, 12 unfortunately left when Joe Kinnear took over and never found another professional club. They all ended up as semi-professionals. The only one that had a club was Andrew Frottiartis, who joined Peterborough. And he played three games or four games. So I feel validated to a degree that my report was 100% correct in terms of the level of the players without being disrespectful to them or demeaning of them. But unfortunately, I don't make the final decisions and those, the powers that be, who unfortunately at times are people that are non-footballing people, they're business people, they're wealthy people, they know how to run organisations, but they're not football people, made a decision whereby they felt that the chief scout at the time, who I brought to the club, Neil Fuchella, would be better with the group of players than I was and Chris Ramsey had been because we were working together as the, the first all-black managerial team in the history of the English game. So they got rid of Chris after three months and they got rid of me after four months. So I don't really believe hand on heart without it sound, want to sound as sour grapes that I got a, a, a real opportunity per se. It's hard not to agree with that and especially I mean I went to Kenilworth Road for the first time about a year ago and the first thing I noticed when I was there was a big poster of you on um, one of the stands. So I know how you're held in such high regard there. It's quite shocking in a way you were giving so little time. But moving on from your short spell as Luton's manager, I know that you would go on to manage in um, Trinidad and Tobago and also eventually go back to Tampa Bay. And at both those clubs, you achieved success. However, I noticed there were some gaps in between both going to um, Trinidad and also going to America. So firstly, I just was interested to know kind of what you were doing in that period. Was it a case of applying for jobs and not getting them or was it doing other things? But also, did you fall out of love with football in that period at all? Great question, Joe. It's, it's always frustrating because you believe you're of a certain level. You want to be judged on ability alone. You want to be judged on what you can offer to any organization. No one wants tokenism. No one wants favoritism. But you just want to have an equal opportunity or an opportunity of equality. So from that perspective, having spent my time, as you rightly say, going to Trinidad and having the kind of season that is not normally associated with one club or one head coach winning four trophies out of a possible five in a professional environment and also that included the best professional club side in the whole of the Caribbean qualifying for CONCACAF Champions League and all that business so it was a it was a standout season I came back because again politics within the club even though we had that great season I still didn't think I was appreciated and the players certainly weren't getting appreciated to the manner that I felt that they should be. I was away from home. I'd sacrificed my family. My kids was, hadn't finished school yet. My wife was here alone. So I thought, why am I doing this for other people that don't really appreciate me and value what we have? So I came back to England, started to write off again for opportunities, jobs, no opportunities. My philosophy has always been, I, I was first generation black player of influx in the UK and I knew at that stage how many quality players that were a couple of years older than me including my brother who was left-footed he was a wonderful player he was great vision great intelligence was never invited for a trial and he was a couple of years older than me 
uh, Queen's Park Rangers was two miles down the road. There was no one from my cohort group, from my school friends, from my other schools that were rivals that were black that had been invited for a trial, to my knowledge, to any of the clubs that were local to us. So I knew when I was finishing my career, I was going to be first generation black coach now. We have no track record to look upon. I was aware of Bill Russell in basketball um, in America for the Boston Celtics, being a manager, and other black managers, and John Thompson, uh, Georgetown, whoever else. But in England, there was nothing for me to, to look at and say, well, look, there's history of us being successful. And it was going to be difficult, and it's still difficult, because the perceptions that held black players back back in the early 70s, it's now transferred to the perceptions of black players now on their acumen, and are they capable of running the side? Are they capable of managing people? Are they capable of being the voice and the face of any organization? And whether that is subconsciously or consciously, an unconscious bias or you know, covert or overt racism, who's to tell? But all, it, all I know is there's a disproportionality in respect to the number of black players that manage to transition from player into coach and then on to manager. And it's just a, a natural fact of life. So for me, being out of work for long spells, frustrating as hell, for sure. Disappointing, for sure. But at the same time, I'm a realist. Uh, this is a journey that I have chosen to embark on. My wife has stood steadfastly by my side to say, you are good. You are who you are. Don't let anyone try to deter you, detract you, denounce you from what you are and who you are and what you're capable of. So I've always looked upon it as if an opportunity arises, I'm gonna to try to grasp it with both hands. I'm gonna put my best foot forward. And outside of Luton, from a coaching managerial perspective, it has been successful. And I would include my academy stints likewise, where numerous players that I, and my um, assistant, uh, my, my co-worker, Charlie Williamson, or Patsy Holland at Tottenham, when we worked together, Numerous players have gone and played premiership and now academy directors, now academy managers at premiership clubs. And I'm thinking, okay, I hope that I played a little role in their progression and in their education of how they see football and how they have their identity. It's brilliant to hear that in the face of adversity, you weren't deterred from continuing to try and try again, because obviously a lot of people don't have that willpower. Sticking on your time in the Caribbean, you managed in Trinidadian club football around the time that the Trinidad and Tobago national team would end up qualifying for the 2006 World Cup. Were you surprised with their success at the time? And then since this sort of peak era with the likes of Stern John, Kenwyn Jones, Dennis Lawrence and Shaka Hislop, to name a few, why has Trinidadian football seemingly taken backward steps since then? And also, why aren't we seeing as many Trinidadians playing in English football as we used to? It's hard to put your finger on exactly why there's been a dearth in recent times of those players that could progress from the Caribbean, Trinidad included, who had that great spell during that period when I was out there where they had Carlos Edwards and Dennis Lawrence and Hector Sam, Jason Scotland and um, various other ones, Marvin Andrews, Kelvin Jack. There was numerous Frank Sancho's that came out during that period. And I was fortunate enough, the side that I had, which was San Juan Jabate, they sent 13 players from that team that I worked with, went to the Trinidad national squad in Germany for the World Cup final, out of 23-man squad. So it was overloaded with players from my, my side, even though I had left a few years before that time. I was delighted. I knew they were capable players. More, most of them should have been able to come to the UK and found some kind of environment here to be able to play. I think what's happened since then, the funding within the practical element of the game has always been lacking in the Caribbean region in general. Trinidad, no difference to that. There's been a lot of money that was spent on Stadia um, when they hosted the Under-17 World Cup. The stadia, they built six new stadiums throughout the whole of Trinidad, plus one in their sister country in Tobago. The pitches were all of a lovely standard. 
So that helped with the quality of the game. The product was good. But in terms of the finance that was added and, and put towards the club for the nutrition and the development of the players and the everyday lifestyles of the players, that's always been lacking. And I can only imagine that since the 2006 World Cup, which was the peak, and from then moving on to, to date, there has never been significant amount of, of investment made into those areas of development which it needs for the players to have. And that goes for all of the Caribbean regions. Uh, whilst we're talking about the Caribbean, I, I can just interject my own situation right now where I'm going to Jamaica shortly to go and work with the Jamaican Football Federation, partly funded by the PFA and Gordon Taylor in particular, whereby I set up a program called the Caribbean Elite Player Development Program. And it's specifically to try to, as you touched on in terms of having an expertise of development working with the younger element within the whole country and i'm going to be looking at the 15 to 17 year olds in the whole of jamaica selecting the, the elite players from that group pushing them through my idea of an elite program what it takes to become a professional footballer the mentality the desire the focus the whole commitment that you need I'm going to try to impart and instill those principles and values into as many as I can throughout the island. And hopefully those who grasp it might be ready to then come out and have a go, and maybe go on the trial into Europe, as opposed to just going to the Americas, which we have gone to the colleges. I'm trying to see if there's any way we can bypass that and get them into relative uh, respective academies throughout the whole of Europe. Just like the African continent, have managed to have done for 35 years. So they've, they've managed to get players from the African continents. So I don't see why the Caribbean, with their just natural ability, natural speed and physique and desire and drive, added those other tele technical elements that you need in terms of the know-how. Hopefully we might see an influx coming through in shortly. Yeah, you mentioned the athletic prowess coming from Jamaica, and obviously you'd only need to briefly glance at their Olympic history to just see in athletics how dominant they've been. And I think we, we saw Usain Bolt, I think, trying to actually begin a professional career in, in Australia. And obviously you're talking about teaching teenagers and even, even teenagers, one might argue, is you're getting there kind of not too late, but it's on the cusp. But obviously with Bolt, he was, it was too late to pick up the technique. But if you can get in there at the right time, like we were saying, Jamaica has just this hotbed of, of athletes. and if someone like a Usain Bolt had decided I want to be a footballer uh, instead of being a sprinter, you can imagine the type of national team that Jamaica would have these days. Moving on from your managerial career to this section that's a bit more focused on a broader sort of issue of racism in football and Regarding the Rooney rule in football, something that emanated from the States, we know that it's something that you're, you're passionate about and you've been pushing towards for some time now. And since its eventual implementation throughout the EFL beginning back in 2016, would you say that the movement and the Rooney rule has been a success? Or would you say that most clubs are just papering over the cracks when it comes to a preference for non-minority coaches? I think the positive perspective of the Rooney rule has been the fact that they are now talking about it, or they, you know, I, I introduced it in 2004. I knew about it whilst I was in Trinidad. I was watching ESPN and a segment came up that there was this forthcoming new rule going to be laid out called the Rooney Rule. So this was February 2003. And I looked at it and I thought, wow, that would be great if the UK could adopt something like that. Minority candidates have had difficulties being seen by the people that make decisions at the club. And something like this, it's not guaranteeing you anything, but it just gives you the opportunity if you are qualified and you are selected to be able to sit down and have a conversation with the powers that be, sell your ideology, sell your ethos, sell your philosophy and put your best foot forward. If it's still not good enough, then so be it. If it is good enough, it might have opened their eyes to someone that they don't normally have in their, their network. Um, so I thought it was a wonderful idea. I thought it would be a no-brainer that England would grab it and say, yeah, we can do this because look how many black players are falling out of the game and struggling to get opportunities as coaches. 
let alone managers. Yeah, let, let's see what we can do. So I took it to John Barnwell, Chris Ramsey and I in 2004. I then introduced it to a steering group that was put together specifically to try to improve the numbers of diversity within the coaching and managerial ranks within the professional environment. And all stakeholders were there, the Premier League, the PFA, the League of Managers, the EFL. And they came back and said that it might be construed as positive discrimination, America's version. And I said, well, it's not the question of whether it is or isn't. It's the willingness to try to find something and put something in place that will enable a more equality to take place than what currently exists. And I said, you know, I've always advocated for a ruling akin to the Rooney Rule. Because the Rooney Rule is in America um, and their laws are different. So I was really, really, I've been heartened when I'm sitting here now, even though no one knows, certain people know that I was the one that brought it here, but they don't acknowledge that. They don't put my name to it or suggest that it, we were, you know, we were unaware of anything like this unless Rick, until Ricky brought it to our attention. But since that time, I've seen BBC One, I've seen ITN, I've seen South African Rugby Union, I've seen Channel 4, I've seen all these other corporations take fractions off the Rooney Rule and implement it into their hiring practices and their practices for, for better practice for everyone and diversity. So before I said, started talking about it, it wasn't in the conversation. It wasn't heard of in this country. So that gives me great pleasure to see it happening. I don't think what's been implemented by the EFL is in any way the true reflection on how it was supposed to be laid out in good faith. Because there were certain caveats unbeknown to the general public and unbeknown to those who weren't in the room when the decisions were made and it was implemented, it was sanctioned, such as once the season starts, clubs can revert back to type and they don't have to interview a minority candidate. Even to the point where during the close season, the senior version of it, of the um, voluntary recruitment code, is what they call it, not the Rooney Rule, and the EFL, it's the voluntary recruitment code. They're expected to run a full hiring process and they would then guarantee one minority candidate to be shortlisted for an interview. Expected being the term here, which has a little bit of ambiguity to it. Whereas the academy position, it's mandatory that you run a full hiring process and shortlist. So my argument, and again, being someone who is speaking out about it, I have no bones to pick with anyone apart from trying to make things better for, for us all and more equal. Why would you say expected at senior level, but you, you're quite happy at Mac to uh, implement things on a mandatory basis at academy level? It smacks of slight tokenism to me, and it smacks of them feeling that we are lesser than and maybe just work at this level initially and see if you can climb through the ranks and get to the senior level. So again, that was a faux pas as far as I was concerned for that to be sanctioned within the rolling out of the uh, voluntary recruitment code. So on that point, it was piloted by 10 clubs and after the pilot, all 72 clubs joined in. And you can understand why, because it was a paper tiger. There was no real meaning behind what they'd offered there. Clubs could circumvent it if they chose to. And most of them did. And you saw on numerous occasions, Wolves signed three managers during the year, Birmingham four, and never once adhered to a Rooney Rule type of interview. So for me, my argument would, will be, if the game is really, really serious about inclusion and inequality, then you have to do things in the correct manner that would allow fairness to take place. If you're going to do it in a half-hearted way or in a kind of semi-devious manner just to say we're doing something, that's not real true integrity in the, in the manner of how things should be, as far as I'm concerned, put into place. And finally on that point, when you consider that 30% almost of players currently now that we have playing are from the black and minority ethnic group, then the disproportionality of black managers and coaches that are working within professional environment is there for everyone to see. And I know it's an industry whereby 
There are so few jobs for so many people. I've always subscribed to that. But at the same time, this disproportionality is really gone way, way too far. Um, it doesn't reflect the true society that we live in. It's a bit ironic almost that you mentioned, I didn't realize that first of all, the Rooney rule was something that only was mandatory during the preseason from the sounds of things. And then otherwise, it's strange that they are only taking it seriously from the academy level up, whereas you see something like VAR being implemented only from the top and not even down, like the lower leagues can't use it. So it's like, here's something that is going to better football, but it's going to be reserved for the elite. Whereas here's something that actually is going to better football, for instance, the Rooney rule, and we're only going to take it seriously on an academy level. It's, it's a bit of a shame that it's become this sort of token gesture, as you were sort of alluding to. The Premiership haven't even subscribed to the token gesture. They, they're adamant that their league does not require any quotas. They don't need any quotas, targets, right. in terms of for, for more equality to be seen within the league. And I find that, again, slightly disheartening, bearing in mind that they've only had two black managers, black British managers, in their 28-year history. But I can't, I can't count the amount of black British players that would have possibly played within their wonderful organisation. Ricky, You've obviously said that the numbers don't really add up anymore and the fact we've got so many black footballers playing, well, playing in the UK, but the, the numbers of coaches is pitifully small. The thing it seems to be is that actually it's hard to create change unless there's change kind of in the boardroom in football. And it feels like in the Football League, in the Premier League, in the Football Association, the lack of diversity is plain to see for everybody. Bearing that in mind, have you ever thought about trying to get a role in that kind of boardroom scenario where potentially if you got a role somewhere like that, you would be able to kind of push for even more change? Because it almost feels like at the moment, unless the people running the clubs and running the association start to take it seriously, it doesn't matter how many black players there are in the game or how many aspiring coaches are, but nothing can change. Yeah. Have you thought about becoming a director or something like that? Um, not sat back and thought, because I've always looked at myself as a footballer, first and foremost, best job in the world, coach, stroke manager, second best job in the world. And now if you're telling me I've got to hang my boots up and then, yeah, of course, I think I have a wealth of knowledge and experience, not just in the UK, as we've alluded to previously, France, the Caribbean, the Americas. So, you know, I am, would consider to be quite versatile in respect to my amount of knowledge that I have in my memory bank in terms of different circumstances, different experiences, you know, from you know, whether it's the um, resources perspective, the stadia perspective, the equality perspective, the inequality, the coaching, the technical element. Yeah, of course I feel that I'm more than well-versed well enough to be able to hold a role of some capacity, whether that be with amongst the a director, the director's cohorts at, at clubs, whether it will be at a, the board level at an organization who are looking at ways to change and then to add more inclusion or, or to add more equality. So that would be something, of course, that I would be interested in pursuing if that was an availability there, if there was um, an appetite for them to, to reach out to say we, we need some extra help. But on that point also, I would also say that we have been, from me perspective, there has been minorities and black minorities within these cohort groups at, you know, Kick It Out, Show Racing Raycard, the, the FA, over a 25-year period. And I'm sure that they've been pushing as hard as they can be to whatever degree, but yet still there's been a certain amount of resistance to, to acknowledge first and foremost that we do have a an issue acknowledge also that there has been three generations of expat players that have somehow missed the boat and it's not because they're not good enough it's because they haven't had the opportunity to show they're good enough they would just like the opportunity like everyone else the same amount of opportunity to fail as everyone else has had so again reform and intervention how much is going to change if it's the same voices that are discussing the same issue within the same rooms but now only, can you say, 10 years down the road or 15 years down the road. And I know there's been an, a reckoning and an, an awakening of a more conscious mind after what we've seen happen 
in the States in recent times over the last month and companies are looking at themselves and, and looking at how they have probably not treated minorities in an, in an equal manner. But at the same time, as you said, it's always easier to show sympathy with gestures of support, of messages, of slogans, of advertisements. But what in reality is that going to do for someone like myself and others who are not working within the game, who have an ability to play a part, a role within professional football, but have found themselves not being able to play, to be included in it, whether it's because of their network and the circle that they have, or, or it's just ha happenstance. But at the same time, I would say the platitudes and hyperbole are great and wonderful, but now it's certainly time for some meaningful action where minority inclusion is required. Certainly. I mean, like we've all been seeing before all the Premier League games and the restart, people taking the knee. We've been seeing a lot of conversation about Black Lives Matter. But like you said, whilst that's all very positive, what needs to happen now is for us to actually see more black managers in the game. And I suppose more black managers getting a fair chance. And I think that sort of leads on quite well to Keitel's question. On that note, Ricky, the likes of Paul Ince, Sol Campbell and Chris Powell are three of the more high-profile black ex-footballers who've managed in the English game in recent years. And at the minute, they're all currently without clubs. Seemingly, Paul Ince has decided to take a significant step back from the game. And not long ago at all, Raheem Sterling was quite vocal with his opinions about the opportunities afforded to white ex-pros like Lampard and Gerrard compared to someone like Sol Campbell, for instance. When it does eventually happen, a black coach succeeding in a high-profile position for a long period of time, what type of positive domino effect could you see that having on younger black footballers within the game and the outlook that they might have on their career after playing to potentially become a manager themselves? Yeah, Raheem Sterling came out and rightly. It was wonderful to hear Raheem come out a few months ago and state that, you know, where are the people that look like him within the coaching setups um, at the professional environments that he works in every day? You know, and it's, it's not just about the X's and the O's. There is a sort of cultural element to it as well you know Raheem comes from Stonebridge in Brent you know Cyril comes from Stonebridge Luther comes from Wilson I come from Cricklewood and we all come from Brent we walked those streets that Raheem walked he was come after us we played the same school pitches that he's played on you know we had the same circle of friends a number of my friends have coached Raheem my quest has always been about trying to create a pathway whereby it's not necessarily for a Raheem Sterling who he choose to become a manager when he's finished. He may choose not to. He might have other options to do. He might go into movies. He might go into music, whatever he might do. But he, he might have choices. The young black player that's played at League One, League Two, who hasn't been able to acquire big moves and, and make a lot of money throughout his career, he'll have to have a secondary profession. And it's that secondary profession that concerns me, whereby why is football not an option for him to have as a secondary profession. At this moment in time, hand on heart, football would, could not be really considered as a serious secondary profession for him because there hasn't been any evidence of that over the past 25 years of an influx of a number of black players that were able to transfer from player to coach. Now, I hope it changes. We keep talking about black managers, but again, black managers need to become, in my estimation, coaches first to have a, a some sort of track record as a coach and a buzz going on or to show that they're capable to then and that goes for any coach whether it's white or black because it's not normal for someone just to be elevated straight from a player into the, the managerial position so I would advocate hopefully that we see more young black coaches or any coach of black coaches who were able to infiltrate the system, become coaches within senior football. I'm not really so concerned at academy because I know the climate is changing down there. I know there are a number of black coaches, good young black coaches. I know within England set up, they've adopted the Rooney rule to, to the letter, verbatim that, that they have in America. So I know they are doing right with the FA. You know, whether I agree with that to blanket sweep it, I don't know. But again, that's another criteria. I, I, I always subscribe to the best man for the job. 
whether you're black or white, best man for the job, please. But when minority candidates are not getting the opportunity to put themselves forward as the best man, that's when the difficulty arises to suggest we don't know how good he might have been. So from that perspective, happy with development going on at the youth programs and you know, the, the consciousness there and the mandatory uh, requirement for the interviewing process, senior level. And again, as you pointed out, Katel, I've always thought that you, you work from the top, the trickle down effect, and the leaders of the game, the world global game are the Premier League. At the moment, they have a poor showing for diversity in coaches and management. Black British particularly, I'm going to sing for us. Uh, you know, I know foreign players are there and we're all black and it is equality, but black British players have been overlooked for eternity. So I'm, I'm singing for them to say, well, can we get more? Um, we highlighted Eddie Newton. Congratulations to Eddie on, on his wonderful achievement of winning the, the, the FA Cup in, in, Tur in Turkey this week. Showing again that given an opportunity, potentially we are capable. There are plenty out there that are. So... I'm hoping that the Premier League, instead of staying in the, in the shadows where they are at this moment in time, in, in my estimation, they have their ECAS placement scheme where they pay for six Bain candidates to go and get placed at um, a Premier League club and do like an apprenticeship there. That's wonderful. But I'm talking about something with more meat on the bone if possible. Please, Mr. Masters, can you have a look and see whether is something that we can add to that kind of feeds things up and accelerates the movement whereby I'm not saying get rid of people for the sake of getting rid of people but at least open your doors to the possibility and your thoughts of a more diverse looking inclusion within the top level of the game. Yeah absolutely again it's looking at the Premier League ironic that we see not ironic necessarily because at the end of the day it's been great to see the images of taking a knee at the whistle at the beginning of the games across the Premier League and the, the Black Lives Matter patches sewn onto the kits as well but they're talking the talk but clearly they're not necessarily walking the walk quite yet on all levels but I will put you on the spot for a moment just here Ricky and do you have any thoughts on who might be the first black English manager to break the mold and succeed at a big club? Is there someone in the pipeline, either in a senior management position lower down or in a coaching role that has potential that's just undeniable? They're going to rise to the top one way or another. Um, I think it's already been done for me. Chris Hewton has been at Newcastle United and Newcastle are a, a big club. They're a major club. They've got a fantastic history, got fantastic support base. And he was successful. And he'd proven that he's successful. He's successful at Brighton. He's successful at Norwich. Chris is the only one from my generation, of my age group, who's actually working professionally. And Keith Curl's slightly younger. Chris Ramsey's younger. And so is Les Ferdinand at a professional club. So Chris would be the flag bearer for us. I'm hoping that it's not dependent on that one moment in time whereby a black coach suddenly against all odds wins the Premier League or the European Champions League to make everyone stand up and say well you know what have we been doing all this time you know where have these guys been you know why didn't you tell me they were around because as far as I'm concerned that is the same mentality that they had when there was a lack of black footballers on the pitch they were they were not prepared to open their eyes and open their hearts and just to say, embrace the thought of, let's see how good these guys are that are growing up at these schools now, that are from the Windrush generation, that have been born black British and welcome them into our club. They didn't do that for many years. But when they saw the impact that the first ones managed to have, i.e. Cyril, Luther, Brian Steen, Chris Hewton, Garth Crooks, Bob Hazel, George Berry, Laurie Cunningham, you name it. They realize, wow, we're missing a trick here. And regardless of what potential prejudices they might have had or might not have had, they thought it's worth taking these guys in because the product was being improved. They were winning games. That's what we brought as footballers. But the same at this moment in time cannot be said about us as managers because the only way you get the chance to show what you have is by actually doing the job. And it's been proven today 
not enough expert players are getting the opportunity to show that they're capable of doing the job. Good, bad or indifferent. Now, I think that's totally correct. And it's interesting as well, given how well Eddie Newton's done in Turkey. Um, you'd like to think at some point in the not too distant future, he'll get the chance to manage in the Premier League and hopefully achieve a similar amount of success. But um, that's all we have time for today. Thanks, Kaitel, as ever, for joining me. And thank you, of course, to Ricky for your time and for speaking so passionately about this very important issue in the wonderful game of football. You can find Ricky on Twitter, where he is at Ricky A. Hill. Ricky, I know earlier you told us about your exciting new job in Jamaica. Is there anything else you want to say to the listeners before we sign off today? Just to say, hope everyone's well. Hope everyone's keeping positive and strong during this time of uncertainty throughout the world. My thoughts are with all of you. And I um, just want to thank my wife and my family and my children, Shana and Shane, and my wife Sharon, for always standing firmly by my side and never wavering from supporting and, and maintaining my, my dreams. Well, thanks again, Ricky. You can follow us on Twitter at BlazersFGPod and you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Blazers for Goalposts. Also, check us out on iTunes and please leave us a nice review. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>